World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There wasn't much policy-wise to separate the two contenders for South Korea's presidency, so they went after one another personally. Now that the political novice Yoon Suk-yeol has won, we examine his domestic and foreign policy challenges. And far too many illnesses are diagnosed only after advanced symptoms appear. But we'll tell you why one British nurse and her exceptional nose are giving hope to millions of people with Parkinson's disease. First up, though. Shortly before Russia invaded Ukraine, France's president, Emmanuel Macron, reportedly said that the Finlandization of Ukraine was one option on the table for ending hostilities. That sparked anger in both Finland and Ukraine. It's not a serious solution. It would be unacceptable to Ukraine. It would be unacceptable to NATO. Now, that's not going to have gone down terribly well here. Uh, as far as uh, Ukraine is concerned. It could certainly be said that Mr. Macron has the look of a chamberlain about him. To put it bluntly, it's a, it's a non-starter on whatever language you're using. The word refers to Finland's limited sovereignty during the Cold War. To maintain even that sovereignty, Finland stayed out of NATO. But even though the Soviet Union didn't invade and swallow Finland, as it did the nearby Baltic states, it exerted immense influence over the country. Prior to Russia's invasion, Ukraine was attempting a similar balancing act. But now, as the war enters its third week, countries like Finland and Sweden, who aren't in NATO, are reconsidering. Opinion polls taken after Russia's invasion suggest that majorities in both countries may want to join the pact. To get a sense of why that is, and more broadly of how European security thinking has changed in the past few weeks, we spoke with Alexander Stubb. Among his many positions in Finland's government, he was prime minister from 2014 to 2015, and he remains a keen observer of European politics. Let's start with a big normative question. Do you think that Finland should join NATO? Short answer, yes. I actually think that Finland should have joined NATO already in 1995. Now, the dilemma that we have at the moment is, of course, that the security situation up in northeastern Europe is quite tense. So what we don't want to do is to escalate the conflict. And given that Putin has three stated goals, one is to take over Ukraine, two is to push back the frontiers of NATO, so Eastern and Central Europe, and three is to prevent Finland and Sweden from joining NATO. So what I would probably do right now is to hold my horses. But I do think that eventually, hopefully, Finland would file an application. Do you expect that Finland will hold a referendum on joining NATO? And if so, how do you think that would go? I don't think it will. Basically, what's happened now is that 
the opinion polls have reversed. So we used to have about 50% against NATO membership and 24. Now, overnight, when the war began, that has reversed. And I, I think we'll see the figures increasing as the war continues and escalates. And there was also an opinion poll where Finns were asked, should we have a referendum or not? There was a clear majority in favor of not having one. And the reason is quite simple. It would be a security risk. Because you would have a whole bunch of external influence, you would have a whole bunch of Russian trolls and disinformation and the rest of it. So I I think what the Finnish political leadership will figure out a way of saying, okay, you know, we have a critical mass of the population behind this for security political reasons. Let's just go ahead without a referendum. And so if Finland does this, presumably it's because it's seeking some sort of protection in the near term. Between submitting a bid, though, and being accepted, there's a long gap, right? So what sort of protection do you think it would be looking for in that case? What sort of protection is on offer in that case? Well, we should probably rewind a little bit and keep in mind that Finland has a defense which is independent and credible. So we didn't start bringing down our defense expenditure after the Cold War. Quite the contrary, we hiked it up. So we bought over 60 F-18 jets. And it's not exactly like we bought them to defend ourselves from Sweden, right? Uh, We knew exactly why we did it. So what I'm trying to say here is that we have a strong defense as things stand. Now, what is the political leadership of Finland doing at the moment? It is trying to maximize security. And the maximization of security is, of course, our deep partnership with NATO. It's Article 42.7, the Solidarity Clause of the European Union. It is exchanging information and making sure that if things get sour and critical, we have all the necessary defense materials flowing over to to Finland. Uh, Let me ask you a question about the NATO members to your south. If you were in the Baltics now, how worried would you be? How would you be viewing the situation? And how do you think the Baltic leaders are viewing the situation? I would probably express it with the word, phew, thank God we joined NATO. As a Finn also, I should say that, you know, Baltic NATO membership, so the fact that Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia are members, the fact that Poland is a member, that increases the security in the northeastern corner of Europe. It increases the security of the Baltic Sea region. So we should be thankful for the step that those countries took. I would not be concerned about the security situation if I was from one of the Baltic states at the moment. The backup is so strong from the United States and from NATO. Do you think that the risk and the threat of a Russian invasion of the Baltics or of Moldova is actually less now than it was three weeks ago, given how their military has performed in Ukraine? It's hard to say, but I'm not a military expert. But at the same time, one can't say, and I'll put this diplomatically, that the Russian troops have exactly done a stellar performance. You know, I was a foreign minister in 2008 in the war in Georgia and chairman of the OSCE. So I went in to broker a ceasefire and we were able to broker a ceasefire within five days. It was a different kettle of fish. We created two frozen conflicts. I thought this was where Putin's actions would end so it, it's, it's really difficult to say how far he will go. He has the stated sort of aims, but also you have to understand the mentality of Putin. A lot of people are doing psychoanalysis, irrationality, rationality, and the rest of it. Forget that. He's very rational from his own perspective. His goal is simple. He wants a historic Russia. So going back to the 1800s, he's looking as a revisionist power. He wants to look at his legacy, and that's why he has the backing of you know, 80% of the Russian public at the moment. Of course, that's also due to a fairly heavy disinformation campaign. 
Now, you've met him, I understand. Yeah. What was your impression of him then? And does he seem different now than he did then? I'm, there's, a, there's a theory, I'm sure you know, that he's been hampered or changed by the years of COVID isolation. Is that credible to you? You know, I, I'm not in the business of psychotherapy. And I, I must admit that, you know, people who do that, that's fine. But it's almost like bad entertainment. I mean, I had the chance to be in the room with him four times. And, you know, when I met him, he was very well prepared. He was very analytical. He was very strategic, quite shrewd, and also quite cold. But at the same time, you know, a person who could, you could have a conversation with. Now, subsequently, what has happened since, I don't know. Let me switch gears a bit and ask about, about Europe more broadly. Do you think, in retrospect, that the West's response, Europe's response to Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 was too tepid? And if you could go back, what would you do then differently? Well, the question that you pose has to be prefaced with the fact that, you know, Russia has used military force to annex a territory three times in the last 14 years. Georgia 2008, were we tough enough then? No, we were not. What did Putin think? He thought, ah, the West is weak. Crimea, tactically probably one of the most brilliant moves that we've seen in recent military history. Whether you like it or dislike it, we all dislike it here. But he did it. What did the West do? We lifted up our hands and said, well, we're going to do a little bit of sanctions. What did Putin think? Ah, the West is weak. I can go as far as I want to. So with hindsight, it's very easy to say, yes, we were too weak. Yes, we were too timid. We were too trepid and the rest of it. Having said that, I have never, ever in my life seen the West, including the European Union, as strong, as fast and as determined with the sanctions policy, with the turnaround on common foreign and security and defense policy, as we have seen in, 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 in the past two weeks. I, it's remarkable. I never knew that an enemy could unite the West as well as Putin has done. And what do you make of that hard turn? What do you make of Germany's Zeitenwende of countries like Denmark raising military spending? Do you think it's purely reactive and will snap back? Or do you think this is a lasting change in European security thinking? Two points on that. The first one is that it's historic and it is a lasting change. And then you have to ask yourself the question, point number two, what drives this? I think it's rational fear and an understanding that Putin might not stop with Ukraine. He might try to push back NATO. You know, he might do something up in northeastern Europe. So certainly it was historic. But also remember the European Union here and President Ursula von der Leyen. <laughs> 500 million euros in arms to Ukraine overnight. So talk about, it's not the president that makes the agenda, it's the agenda that makes the president. And talk about determination. It was the same thing with COVID. Within four months, biggest rescue package in the history of European integration. And now we see this sort of Hamiltonian moment in finance with COVID. And now we see, I don't know what we call it, a Napoleon moment for the European Union when it comes to, to, to pushing defense forward. So this is a permanent state of affairs, that's for sure. Mr. Prime Minister, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
South Korea has elected a new president, Yoon Suk-yeol, by the narrowest margin in the country's history. Mr. Yoon of the conservative People Power Party beat out his rival Lee Jae-myung of the ruling Minju or Democratic Party after what turned out to be nasty campaigning. It's been called the unlikable election. Voters didn't really care for either of the candidates. Mr. Yoon has a pile of economic problems at home and security issues abroad, including the perennially belligerent North Korea. He said he'd deal with the country sternly, but would always leave a door open for dialogue. His most pressing task, though, may be to restore voters' faith in politics and politicians. Mr. Yoon is a political novice, but a long-standing member of Seoul's elite. Lena Shipper is our Seoul bureau chief. He made his name as a hard-driving prosecutor who played a key role in going after Pat Gunhae, a former president for corruption. But he entered politics less than a year ago after he quit his job as chief prosecutor under Moon Jae-in, the outgoing president. And he quit because the two fell out over an investigation of the justice minister. So why was this election so contentious? Yoon and Lee were the least popular pair of contenders for the presidency since the country democratized in 87. All the voters I've talked to during the campaign over the past few weeks, they were basically just like, you know, I need to decide which one of these guys I hate the least. And that was largely to do with their personalities. Mr. Yoon's uh, political inexperience really didn't do him any favors. He made a lot of embarrassing gaffes. He was accused of associating with shamans and believing in in superstitious practices, all of which he denies. And he threatened to go after the outgoing administration for corruption if he was elected. Mr. Lee, meanwhile, faced a lot of questions about a land speculation scandal that happened in Songnam, which is a middle-class suburb of Seoul where he used to be the mayor. In his attempts to uh, do down Mr. Yoon, he said some things for which he had to apologize. For instance, recently he uh, blamed Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, for the invasion of Ukraine on the grounds of his being a political novice, which uh, was a dig at Mr. Yoon, who also only recently entered politics. So there was just generally a lot of mudslinging and unpleasantness in the campaign. So it seems as if the contenders were most interested in mudslinging. What about the voters? What were they interested in? So the main thing that voters in South Korea have been concerned about domestically was house prices, because during Moon Jae-in's presidency, house prices in Seoul rose by nearly half, and it's become incredibly difficult for young people in particular to afford houses. People also worried a lot about the economic fallout from the pandemic, the impact on small businesses. So in terms of the promises the two candidates made to voters regarding domestic issues like house prices and the economy, there wasn't that much difference. There was a bit of space between them on foreign policy. So on North Korea, Lee Jae-myung said you know, he was basically going to follow the engagement policy of Moon Jae-in, the current president. And Yoon said uh, he would take a harder line against both North Korea and also China. But that wasn't the main domestic concern for voters. In in that case, what do we know about what Mr. Yoon will do in office now that he's got there? So he hasn't been particularly explicit about his plans. He's promised he's going to focus on anti-corruption and the rule of law. Uh, He's also made a lot of his commitment to meritocracy, and particularly his comments about, you know, the absence of gender discrimination in South Korea and, and his pandering to young men who feel that they're being unfairly treated by overly women-friendly policies, for which there's you know, very little evidence, but it, it went down very well. He said he's going to take a harder line on uh, North Korea and China. 
um, and align South Korea more closely with America, which would be a departure from the policy of Moon Jae-in, who was very focused on engagement with North Korea, even though you no know, diplomacy basically broke down three years ago at the summit in Hanoi. But because of uh, Mr. Yoon's political inexperience, we don't really know how he's actually going to deliver on any of these promises. And you say that uh, the real substance was about domestic issues, but but South Korea has some some real international challenges as well. South Korea is the 10th biggest economy in the world, and also it's one of its largest arms exporters and a very important player in the global tech industry, particularly on semiconductors. And it's always been in this quite tricky position where it's in a security alliance with America, you know, and it's uh, very closely tied to Western democracies, but it has China as its main trading partner and its economic success very much depends on close ties with China. The changes in the geopolitical environment that we're seeing at the moment, you know, with Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, is really making smaller countries like South Korea thinking harder about their security. If tensions between America and China continue to escalate, which seems likely, then that position in the middle is going to be increasingly difficult for the next president. And added to that, you've got a sort of slightly tetchy relationship between South Korea and Japan. You know, they're also allies, but there's the history of Japan as South Korea's colonial power and a lot of issues, unresolved issues to do with that. And that relationship has been really difficult recently. And then obviously you've got the perennial issue of North Korea, which apparently has started rebuilding one of the nuclear test sites that it blew up during a period of detente three years ago. So that looks likely to escalate further in the near future as well. So quite a few fine lines to walk then, both at home and abroad for, for Mr. Yoon. How, how well equipped do you think he is to do so? Given the fact that he's only just entered politics, we don't really know particularly well how well equipped he is to deal with these very complex domestic and international challenges. His behaviour in the campaign suggests that he's going to struggle. He's made a lot of gaffes that were um, directly related to a sort of lack of experience in a lot of the areas he's going to have to deal with. And he's also going to have a more general problem domestically, which is that the Minju Party, um, the party of Mr. Lee, still has a supermajority in the National Assembly. So anything that requires legislation, he's not going to be able to do unless he convinces lawmakers from the Minju Party to support his policies. And given the divisiveness of the campaign and the mudslinging that's happened over the past few months, he's going to have a very hard time forging a sense of unity and reaching across the aisle. Lena, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. Parkinson's disease is an incurable and ultimately fatal neurological disorder. If it's caught early, doctors can alleviate some of its symptoms and lengthen the lives of those who have it. The problem is that it's hard to diagnose in its earliest stages. Often the first noticeable sign is the disease's characteristic tremors. But it turns out there's another symptom, one that shows up much earlier if you know what you're looking for. People with Parkinson's disease create an odor. And most people can't smell that odor, but one woman can. Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent with The Economist. This discovery was made a number of years ago when a lady named Joy Milne, who's a nurse in Scotland, found out that her husband had Parkinson's. And as he was going about the house, she noted a certain smell that he had. It was sort of a, a subtle, musky odor. She just assumed that everybody in the world must know that people with Parkinson's disease get this kind of a smell. 
And so she didn't raise it. Yet at a meeting of people with Parkinson's, she raised the issue with researchers and said, you know, why is it that people with Parkinson's get this smell? And the researchers who were chairing the meeting said, what are you talking about? You can imagine they were very interested in a, in a possible diagnostic tool. As the researchers working with Joy worked out that she could, in fact, smell the odor, they were curious as to just how accurate her nose was. And so they started running all these experiments with her where they gave her clothes that were worn by patients who had had the disease. And just, you know, because they're scientists, they threw in some clothes from people who didn't have Parkinson's. They put these in there intentionally to trip her up. And what was really astounding is actually one of these sets of clothing. She said, this person has Parkinson's disease. And the researchers went, aha, you got it wrong. This person doesn't have it. But then six months later, the person developed the disorder, even though all of the current tests had shown that the person didn't have it at the time. It was really striking. So what is it that Joy is actually smelling, though? So researchers working with Joy were able to work out that the smell was coming predominantly from the upper back of Parkinson's patients. And as they looked closer, they worked out there's this compound. It's an oily secretion called sebum. It's produced on the skin in large quantities in the upper back. Sebum seems to react to specific volatile organic compounds like dodecane, acetone, and ethyl acetate that are produced in particularly high concentrations in Parkinson's patients. The combination of these volatile organic compounds with sebum is leading to yeast cells that naturally grow on your skin to start producing the mysterious odor that Joy was detecting. So this seems to point to a real diagnostic tool, but obviously you can't just cart Joy around the world diagnosing people. You're right. And this is where the new research comes in. A team at Shexiang University in China has described an invention which looks like it can detect Parkinson's before the onset of tremors using a lot of the smell characteristics that Joy has already helped to identify. The device in question is an artificially intelligent electronic nose, and it's able to detect the specific smells that she is noticing. And what's really cool about this, Jason, is that the machine is effectively the size of a toaster, which means that this can be carted around pretty easily and hopefully mass-produced to be able to do a lot of what she's doing without all of the trouble. But does it stand up to her discerning nose? Is it as good as she is? Unfortunately, no. And this is the real frustration. The device is capable of detecting someone who we know has Parkinson's as having the disease 70% of the time. And it's able to detect that a healthy person is clear of the disease 80% of the time. This is nowhere near as good as Miss Milne's nose because she's able to do it perfectly all the time. But it's a starting point. So hopefully, by working with this further and sharpening the technology, and more importantly, improving the artificial intelligence, the device is going to be able to provide much better information in the future. Thanks very much for joining us, Matt. My pleasure, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
world peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.